0: It's Palm Sunday today, and, and uh, you know I, I want, the reason I want to point this out today is I think sometimes we have such a small view of our world and, and such a small view of what God is doing, I do, I tend towards that. We get fixated on what we're all about, right? Our life, our situations, our problems. But do you realize, that, I kind of want to get us to open up our, our, our minds a little bit. Do you realize that today, well in excess of one billion people on the globe this week, this weekend, because of course you know, we have a 24-hour period it takes to, to go around the whole world, that in this 24-hour period, over a billion Christians worldwide will be celebrating Palm Sunday. We're taking the time aside, setting it aside, and saying, what is this all about? That all these people are focusing on the events of one man's life in one day over 2,000 years ago. That we we look at that and say, It's so important that we set aside everything else, and over a billion people on the globe say, Today, let's talk about Palm Sunday. Focusing on primarily this the fact that Jesus came into Jerusalem as King. That's what Palm Sunday is really all about. That Jesus came as King at the very end of his earthly ministry, the last week, as a matter of fact, it ushered in his last week of ministry, and he came and he said I'm the king you've been looking for. You know, and that's what we want to think about today. So grab your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Matthew, the 21st chapter, and let's read the events of that Palm Sunday that a billion plus people are looking at this exact event today. It must be pretty important if a billion plus people are all looking at it in one 24-hour period of time. Matthew 21, starting in verse 1. Starting in chapter, chapter 21, verse 1. says this, When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then this is Jesus and his disciples, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet? Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their colts on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees, palm branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him, and those who were following were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when they had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. On that day... Jesus starts the last week of his earthly ministry and his last week of life on earth. And to start it off, he takes two of his closest disciples, two of the twelve, and he tells them to go into the city opposite them, he said, and to find a a donkey and its colt full that are tied up there to bring them to him because he wants to get on the donkey and ride into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey. Now that might seem to be like an odd fact to include in the inspired scriptures. You know, I don't think of, I can't think of any time before where it really talked about Jesus' mode of transportation. You know, but um, it did say he walked and sometimes he was in a boat, but it makes special em- emphasis here to talk about this detail that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And what we find from the story that we've just read is it's a vitally important part to happen on that day to make everybody understand what's really going on. You see, entering Jerusalem in the way he did, riding on a donkey, told everyone that he was the promised king that they had been hoping for and they'd been praying for. You see, when he rode into town on a donkey that day, he was fulfilling a 500-year-old prophecy from the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah, one of the Jewish prophets... Um, had said by the Spirit of the Lord 500 years earlier that, that one day the, prophet, the, the, the final prophet would come. And this, he'd come in a particular way. And verse 5 of our text is a recounting of what Zechariah the prophet said. Look at verse 5. He's just simply saying, have you noticed in your Bible, I try to point these things out, in my Bible, the, the text looks different. It goes from one kind of type to a different kind of type. Do you understand why that is? It's because it's, it's quoting a prophecy that came from the Old Testament. It's saying, this is a recounting of that. And so it says in verse 5 here, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. It says, this is how your king will come. You'll come in a very particular way. You'll recognize him when he comes this way. And so what does Jesus do? He understands that to fulfill prophecy, he's going to ride into town in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. And so he rides into Jerusalem sitting on a donkey. And interestingly, it doesn't just say sitting on a donkey, but it says that your prophet will come to you gentle and mounted on a donkey. And you might read right over that word gentle, but there's great significance on how he rode on this donkey into town. The point of the matter saying he rode in gentle is not that the donkey wasn't, was bucking or not bucking. That wasn't meant by gentle. He meant that the way he comes into town is that he comes in not as some insurrectionist, some political insurrectionist looking to start a coup and overthrow the government, but he comes in gentle, meek, riding on a donkey, that that's what their king would look like. That's what they should be watching for. So Jesus comes into town in the sense, not as this warlord, but as the prophet on the back of a donkey, and he rides into town. And through his actions, he states openly for the first time. Remember, all these times people have been asking him through his whole ministry, are you really the one? And he always gives them kind of, kind of secretive answers. Not secretive to the person who understood the New Testament, but answers that they're like, well, just come out and say it. I just want to know. And for this time, he openly is saying for the first time, I am the promised king. I am and fulfilling the 500-year-old prophecy that you've all been waiting for for this whole time. I am the promised king. I have been sent by God. I am the fulfillment of prophecy. I am the one you have been hoping for, the one you have been praying for. And we know something. We know that people clearly understood his message. And this is how we know they understood his message, and it's in a, in a negative way. You may recall that just about a week later, he's going to be crucified. And when they crucified Jesus... They did something that you might also say, why did they include that in Scripture? It says that as they crucified Him, they took a sign, and they wrote something on the sign, and they nailed it above His head on the cross. Can you remember what it said on that sign? This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And remember the Jewish leaders got ticked, and they said, don't write that. Say instead, He says He's the King of the Jews. And the Roman leaders said, no way. I will put on there what I want to put on there. And they put the words, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. They clearly understood that day. Sometimes we say, Oh, they misunderstood. Or they really didn't get it. If they really got it, they really would have followed Him. No. They absolutely understood. They understood so much, even the people who weren't Jewish, who weren't looking for the fulfillment of promise, understood that, Hey, here's your King. And the Romans, I think, looked at it and said, Yeah, here's your King. Look what we did to your King. We nailed Him to a cross. There's your King, baby. We have all authority. You have none. The people understood exactly who Jesus was. They nailed it above the cross a week later and saying, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. His message came through loud and clear that day. I am the King sent from God to establish the kingdom of God. So think of it that day. The crowd filled with excitement. Ran out, it said, and they, they welcome into the city. He's riding on a donkey. They welcome into the city. They lay their coats on the ground, like a red carpet. We think in these days of, of the red carpet reception at an opening of a, of a movie or certain awards. They roll out the red carpet. This was their version of the red carpet. They take their coats and they lay them on the ground and they cut branches from their trees. Now get it. They don't have, they didn't have trees that are similar to ours so much. They had palm trees. And so they cut off, if you've ever been to the Middle East, that's the trees. So they cut off palm branches, and they laid them on the ground. And as he came into town, they start shouting, Hosanna, which means save now. They're saying, basically saying, we're tired of waiting. We've been waiting. Zechariah prophesied 5, 500 years ago, you're coming. We've been waiting, and now it's time. Hosanna, save now, son of David. It was a king's welcome. They understood this was David's anointed descendant. That the, that the scriptures had promised that someday of the, the, somebody following in the line of David would come and be a king forever. And they got it. This is who it is. He's finally here. That's what was going on. That was the buzz in the city that day. Now let's understand something about the crowd that praised Jesus that day. They misunderstood what it meant for Jesus to come as king. And let's not be too hard on them. If I read the same text and I had the same background in in, in the Jewish history that they had, we probably would have made the same wrong assumptions that they made. They looked at him, they misunderstood what it meant for him to be the king following in the the footsteps of of David. You know, the, the heir of David. They misunderstood. They saw him as the one anointed by God who would save them from Roman oppression. That's what they thought. They thought that he was going to be like Moses. See, they had a real good reason to think that. There's other prophecies that said one like Moses would come. And they're saying, okay, if he's going to be like Moses, he'll do what Moses did. And we think what Moses did, Moses was a spiritual but also a political leader. In the sense that he took an entire nation, he challenged the political forces, Pharaoh and Egypt... And he ended up, after the plagues of God, leading the people out of Egypt into the Promised Land. Now, 40 years of wilderness wandering and crossing through some red seas and stuff in the process, but that's basically, in a nutshell, what Moses did. And so they're thinking, here comes the next deliverer, just like Moses led the people out of Egypt... Jesus is going to lead us out of Roman oppression. They thought Jesus would be this political leader, this political king. And that's what they, they, they hoped for, because the situation the Jews found themselves in was one of incredible oppression. They lived under incredibly heavy taxes. They lived under incredible restrictions. They had to do whatever the Romans said. That's why when your Bible says that somebody says to go with you one mile, go two, that was because of Roman oppression. The Romans, a soldier could walk up to you and say, Dave, I don't care what you're busy. You can't go plant your fields right now. I need you to carry my box of stuff down the road. And you'd have to say, well, okay. And then Jesus says, well, don't just go one. They could insist one. You had to go two. They found themselves under, under heavy executions all the time. When they weren't happy with what went on, they just killed people. And so they lived under fear. They lived under oppression. They lived under heavy taxes. And they wanted freedom. They wanted a king. They wanted a conqueror. Someone to set them free. And they looked at Jesus coming in and they believed Jesus must be that guy. They had every reason to believe he could be that guy because they had seen who Jesus really was over the last three years of his life. They had seen his mighty works, they had listened to his teachings, and they said, this is the guy. They saw him restore sight to the blind. Who else but somebody from God could do that? They had seen him feeding thousands of people with a boy's lunch. You say, you want to be a political superstar? You say, I can feed you all. It won't cost you anything. Sounds kind of familiar. Yeah. You know? Um, they saw him heal lame people. And they're saying, this must be the guy. They listened. If you think of the, of the interactions to the Gospels, they had listened to him teach and preach. And that what they were so amazed by is they said, this guy has unusual authority. Remember? They said, he's not like the scribes and the leaders of today. This guy teaches with authority. They knew that authority came from God. And so their conclusion is, surely, with power and authority like that, Jesus was without a doubt the one who would set them free from oppression. And in their minds, the timing was perfect. Understand, here's a nation who, is, who lives its life trying to live according to what God wants. Now, of course, they've drifted spiritually, but their whole life was wrapped. They didn't have a sacred and secular view. They had a view of, we are the people of God. And so everything revolved around that concept and so they're looking just at the practicality of where they're at in the calendar year and they're understanding as Jesus comes this day that the timing is perfect because the timing was approaching the Passover. It's just about time. Remember, Jesus, we're going to see a little later, is going to be the fulfillment of the Passover. He's going to be the ultimate Passover lamb sacrificed for the sins of many for all of mankind. And they didn't get that part, but they're looking and saying, hey, he's coming as king, fulfillment of 500-year-old prophecy, at the exact right time, he's coming just before the Passover feast. Because that Passover feast was symbolic of the event, of the, the day, when the, uh, as Moses was going to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, that God said, go into your house, close the door, sacrifice a lamb, and put the blood on the doorposts. And if you do that, the death angel is going to pass over, and after the death the angel passes over, it will be the plague that Moses will finally say, get out of Egypt. And they're understanding at this Passover celebration that at Passover, Pharaoh let God's people go. And this just might be the time that the Romans will let that oppression go. You see, for them, Passover meant freedom. If you want to equate it in your mind of what, how we would kind of look at it, it's kind of like our 4th of July celebration. We celebrate freedom, politically. To them, that's what it meant. Passover was this day where their people, their nation had been set free. And they're saying, it's the right time. It's just before 4th of July. That's kind of what they're saying. You know, it's the right time. It's just before the Passover. And they think in their minds, now just maybe, something like that Passover will happen again. And Jesus would lead them from bondage to freedom. So on that day, the people did something. It says they received him as their king. They said, you are our king. They received him as king and they shouted, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was a great day for the people. Their years of, in their minds, their years of suffering were over. Jesus was their king, and he's going to show the Romans. He's going to give them what for? He's going to say, listen, you thought you're tough, but you don't know our God. That's what they're thinking. I would love to have been there on that day because the atmosphere must have been electric. Remember, they didn't get the fact that the crucifixion was only a few days away. That within a week, this guy they're championing would be nailed to a cross and die. To them, Israel was going to rise again under the leadership of their new king, Jesus, and they receive him as king. Now, we've got something they don't have. We've got 2,000 years of perspective in history. From our historical perspective, we know that their excitement would be short-lived. That their king, that they thought was his political king, would be nailed to a cross in just a few days There'd be no political uprising. There'd be no civil war. There'd be no death angel passing over. No, no great thing like that was going to happen. They, that we know that that didn't happen. And we know that same crowd that hailed him as king would shout just the opposite. Crucify him to Pontius Pilate within the week. We know that from our perspective. But here's something that I want us to focus on today, to think about today. There was only one person there of the entire crowd that day who realized that the excitement would be short-lived. And that was Jesus himself. He was the only one who got it. As being fully man and fully God, being continually in connection with the Father, he knew what was happening. You know, Jesus knew that as he entered Jerusalem, he was doing something. That he was entering his final week of life on earth that day. He knew the horror, he knew the pain that lay ahead for him. He had tried to explain the fact that he knew that in advance to his disciples, multiple times as you read the end of the Gospels, Jesus is saying, I'm going and I'm going to die, and they don't get it. One time the Peter, he says it, and Peter says, that ain't going to happen. And what's Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking God's ways, you're thinking man's ways. Why? He's saying, I want to be a king. Just before this event in Matthew 21, read the the context. You know what it was? Two of the disciples going to Jesus and saying, can we be leaders? Can we sit on your right and left? They thought the same thing. There's only one person that day who knew that he was entering his final week of ministry. He had tried to explain it even to his closest 12, and they just couldn't get it. But he knew. He knew what was happening. He knew what he was doing, what motion he was putting into, what activity he was putting into motion. So the question is that I have to ask when I look at that. Because I look at it and i if you're like me, I try to put myself into the story. I try to ask questions. It's a great thing to do as you read the Bible. Sit in this, kind of get in the story and say, what's really going on here? And I ask this question. Why in the world did he do it? Why would Jesus have done it? They didn't know, but he knew. If you're in a situation, you're getting on a cruise ship, and you know it's going to sink, what would you do? you get off the ship. No one else knows. You try to tell them, it's going to sink. It's called the Titanic. You know, it's unsinkable. It can't happen. No, no, no. I know it's going to sink. No one believes Jesus was the only one who knew it was going to sink. He had tried to warn people, but they didn't get it. The question is, why did he do it? Why did he still get on the ship? Why did he start the willingly set into motion the events that would culminate in his death? He could have walked away. And the answer is very, very, very simple it's one word love. That's why he did it. L O V E. Love. He willingly set things in motion because of his love for humanity. His love for you and me, and we kind of accept that, we kind of say, I'm not so bad, I'm not so hard to love. Sometimes our spouses disagree. But, He did it even for those who would nail Him to the cross in just a few days. Think of that. He set in motion the process that would cause His death to bring salvation to people, even the people, if they wanted it, that were going to kill Him in a few days. He was the only one who understood that for him, this is the point, to really be the king that mankind needed. They were looking for one kind of king. He understood if he was going to really be the king, because they were right, he is king. He was the fulfillment of prophecy. He was hosanna. He was blessed as the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He did come in the name of the Lord. That in order to be the king that they needed, he must set in motion the events that would lead to his death. Because he knew that what man really needs is not a political, is not political freedom, but spiritual freedom. He understood that. You know, no matter what the spiritual state is in the, in a nation, you can serve God. You can have politi- You can have. You can have spiritual freedom. I think that's something the church world needs to wrestle with in these days. Because I don't know the, what's going to happen in the great land we call America. I'm not a doomsday guy at all. But when I look at it. I watch the news, and I go, man, this thing could get ugly. What's it going to be like for my kids? I know this. It doesn't matter what it gets like. I know this. You can still have spiritual freedom. And Jesus understood human, human regimes will rise and fall. Nations will come and go. Scripture says it. But his kingdom is above all that and beyond all that. And he understood what man really needs is not political freedom, although that's wonderful. But what man really needs is spiritual freedom. Freedom from sin's grip. That's what spiritual freedom is all about. Freedom from the grip of sin. That grip of sin can only be broken by Jesus' death and resurrection. And that's what Jesus understood that day. See, He understood that when He would rise from the grave in just a, a, a little while after, a little over a week later than this day He wrote in His King, that when He would die and then rise from the grave, that what would happen, according to Scripture is that he would break the power of sin over mankind. Those chains that were unbreakable before, now would be broken by Jesus himself. And mankind would have the the ability to, to receive Christ, as now as their personal king, and have freedom spiritually in their life. But he understood that he had to die first. So he set the wheels in motion that would lead to his death for our spiritual freedom. Now friends, that's love. That's amazing love. Just try to grasp for one moment how much God loves you and me. Just try to. He loves us so much that that's what He was willing to do for you. That's what He did for us. That's what He did for the person that would hold the nail and drive the nail through His hand. And that leads me to think, ask myself another question if I'm in the story. And the question is this. Then what should our response be when we come to understand that in love He laid down His life for ours? He laid down His life to give us spiritual freedom. How should you and I respond today with the over one billion other people on the planet who are thinking of these days today? How should we respond? And I would say this. If we'd get this right, the next part, we'd change the world if we responded to this thing right if over a billion people did how should we respond first of all we should respond with gratitude that's how we should respond first of all you know I want every one of us to take time this poem Sunday to just allow ourselves to think about what God has done Jesus has done what he started that day when he concluded at the end of the week And just allow your heart to be transformed by gratitude for your King who willingly gave His life for you. I challenge you today, take time today, to just think about what He has done and still does every single day in your life. And if you really think about it, there is no response you could have other than, to begin with, to have gratitude. There's nothing else. And I'll tell you this, that gratitude will put your life into a perspective that nothing else will. When you have the gratitude for what Christ has done in your life and you understand the magnitude of what He's done in your life, suddenly what happens in light of that is when you rec- recognize what Jesus has done, some of the problems in your life and some of the obstacles in your life don't seem quite so big anymore. Because you understand He's bigger. You understand He's, he's bigger. You can give it to Him. You understand that sometimes we focus, we, we look down and we focus on the, the trivial and it can kind of gum up the works of our life. But we look up and we see what He's done. We understand how great He is and how powerful He is and suddenly things become in the right perspective. And we say, thank you Jesus for what you have done. It changes everything about your perspective as you walk through the day. So we should respond with gratitude. That's the proper response. But there's another response that flows out of gratitude that I want, uh, that I want us to think about today. Another appropriate response that comes out of gratitude and looking at the reality of what Jesus has done It's this. How should we respond? we should respond with imitation our hearts of gratitude should lead us to imitating what jesus has done you see the greatest way you can say thank you that's what gratitude really is the outflow of gratitude is saying thank you the greatest way we can say thank you to jesus is to become more like him in first john chapter 3 verse 16 it says this first john 3:16 it says we know love by this that he laid down his life for us And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's what it says. That it's imitation. That he laid down his life for us. That's what he began on that Palm Sunday. The process of laying it down. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. You know what? We live in a world today that doesn't like the word ought. It doesn't. Josh was just mentioning to me as we are studying worship today, was something happened in, this, in the worship, and he said, Dad, I realize you're right. We do live, I do, I'm part of the why, the why generation. Ask why about everything. He said in the army. He says, ridiculous. Everybody says, why do we have to do that? And the sergeants say, basically, shut up and do it, because you ought to do it, because I told you so. Um, sometimes there's nothing wrong with asking why, but sometimes we ask why. God tells us what we do, and he says, you just ought to do it. And what he says here is, he laid down his life for us, and we ought to Lay down our lives for the brethren. Some people, preachers, like to only give half of it. Christians like to only live half of it. Oh, they celebrate the grace. But if you celebrate the grace, you've got you to imitate the one who gave you grace. And that's what Palm Sunday shows us today. A proper response to Jesus' example of love should be that we love as we have been loved. We really should be people who care. That should be more than the slogan of our church at Portview. We really should be people who care, revealed as we imitate Jesus. In response to what Jesus has done, we lay down our lives for others. That's what it says. We should lay down our lives for the brethren. We at times surrender our desires in order to benefit another. Real love says I lay aside my indulgences at times for another person. Real love says at times I give of my time to something I would rather not do to benefit another. And this is what I found when you do that, you're glad at the end you did it. Because you sense the presence and the anointing of the Lord. Real love says sometimes I give up my satisfactions, or at least what I think would give me satisfaction, in order to see somebody else satisfied. In order to invest love into the lives of other people, because I'm imitating Jesus. Isn't that what Jesus did? He got in the sinking Titanic for us. He said, I'm going to invest love into the lives of others. It's laying down your life. That's what it says. Laying down your life. Giving of your most valuable resource. You know what your most valuable resource is? It's you. That's your most valuable resource. It's you. You're giving of your most valuable resource. To others. That's what Jesus did, and we're to imitate him. Our response to Jesus' example of love should be imitation. The great Bible um, theologian teacher John Stott says this, and this was this if we just wrote this down as a uh, somewhere and just looked at it every day, it would change how we lived our days. He says, The cross is an example to copy, not simply a revelation to love and to admire. The cross is an example to copy. That's what 1 John 3.16 is talking about. Not simply a revelation to love and to admire. Friends, it's all about imitation. That's the proper response. That's the proper response to recognizing what Jesus has done. Living lives of loving others is what being a Christian is really all about. Becoming people who care. And this Passion Week, here's my my closing challenge. This Passion Week, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter. When you are reminded of the love Jesus has shown to you, I challenge you to, on purpose, show love to those around you. Do it on purpose like Jesus. You say, but if I... If I do this, I know what it's going to put into motion. That's exactly it. Jesus knew when he did something what it would put into motion. And he did it because of love. So let's imitate Christ this passion week. Let's say the Lord, love people through me this week. Let me, God, and it costs you something. It costs you time, it costs you convenience, it costs you money, it costs you energy but the payback is so much better because you become more like Jesus. And that should be the goal of all of our lives. Amen? Amen. Amen. Stand with me this morning. Let's just pray as we close our service today. And I just want to thank the Lord Jesus in our prayer time as we close for who He is and what He's done. Join me in prayer. Dear Lord Jesus. Thank you for your amazing love. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us so much that you understood on that Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago exactly what would happen when you told your disciples to go get the donkey and you allowed them to put their coats on its back and you crawled up on that donkey's back you knew exactly what would happen when you rode into town and they received you as king you knew they'd receive you and you knew they'd reject you but love said I'll do I'll give them what they need not what they necessarily want and you have given us what we need you have broken the power of sin in our lives you've set us free. And who is in Christ is free indeed. Whom you have set free is free indeed. And God, I pray for us as a congregation that we would learn to walk in the freedom that you have provided for us. You've already given it to us. Spiritual freedom from the bondages of sin. And God, I pray in Jesus' name that you would help us to begin to walk out the lives of freedom. God, break addictions. God, break false thinkings in our minds that hold us back and God set us free so that then God with our free lives we may then freely love other people with the love that you pour into our hearts.